Now, that said, uh, we just want to say again here at Grace, happy Mother's Day to all of you. We're so glad that you chose to celebrate it with us. Um, before we go a little too deep into it, though, I, I feel like it's appropriate that I begin with this confession. Um, I don't typically like Mother's Day. <laughs> It's just not one of those holidays that I really enjoy. I appreciate that Dave Galley got that snicker going on. And here's why, okay? Here's, here's the reason why. It's not just, it's not because I don't think parents deserve to be celebrated. I want to make this very clear. Moms in the room, I believe wholeheartedly that you deserve to be appreciated and acknowledged for what you do for your children. I have watched, I've had the privilege of being a teacher and a youth pastor for years, and so I've seen the way parents love their children, and I have always been impressed. And more than that, even as, as Melissa has now entered into this new phase of pregnancy and stuff like that, and I see the way that she cares for this baby that we've never even met, you know, she suffers and doesn't take medicine when she's sick and all these things, the self-sacrifice that is involved in this, it's mind-blowing. And I imagine that when I come back next year and talk on Mother's Day, I'm going to have an incredibly richer perspective of what it is that a mom does. And so I want to be very clear, moms, I hope you feel appreciated. I just don't think it should be limited to one day. A year for you. I think you deserve to be acknowledged way more often than that. And so I want to say that. The other reason, though, is this, though, and this is really where it kind of comes from for me, why I've never enjoyed it. Because in the last few years, Mother's Day and Father's Day have been the most painful days of the year for my wife and I. Most painful. And the reason for that is, if you didn't know this about us, um, we struggled for a really, really long time to get pregnant. Um, it was really hard, and so every time we'd come across Mother's Day or Father's Day, it was like a swift kick to a bruise. You know what I'm talking about? Like, oh, here's that really sore area in your life. Bam! Again, you're not a dad. Oh, you're not pregnant. It hurt. It hurt. And um, it was just a constant perpetual reminder, hey, that great desire of your heart, yeah, God is saying no to that right now. And that's, that's just not, it's not fun. But the other thing is, is this, is I, I recognize doing this job that, and I, I'm, I'm humbled by the fact that you allow me into these spaces, but I know for a fact that there are so many of you that Mother's Day is a difficult day for you. I know for a fact that for many of you right now, you're reflecting on your own mom and many of you lost your mom recently. And today is a poignant reminder of her absence in your life. I also know there's others of you who, for whatever reason, Mother's Day points out that giant rift that exists in your life, either between you and your mom or you and your children. That there's something going on there and Mother's Day is just a reminder of that. And so, like I, I acknowledge, Mother's Day is not, it, it should be celebrated. Mother's Day should be something that acknowledges and we recognize that this is a good gift from God. But we also have to recognize that Mother's Day can be tough. Mother's Day can be tough. And so, like I said, I, I'm learning a new side of Mother's Day as I look forward to celebrating it next year with an actual baby. Um, very much looking forward to that. But here's the thing, and this is what I want to talk about this morning. In the, the last few years, the last few years, I have learned a lot about God. I've learned a lot about who God is and, more importantly, what it means to truly have hope, especially when God says no to the great desires of your heart. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to, I really, my goal this morning is to kind of share a large part of my story, something I haven't really done, but it just kind of fits really well. Because here's the truth is, it's in those moments of great despair, those moments when everything seems super disorienting and discouraging and depressing, that God's word and God himself seems to just speak so clearly, 
so clearly. I mean, that's clearly been the case for Israel. If you're new with us or you haven't been with us in a while, this year as a church, we've been working through the story of Scripture. We started at the beginning of January in the book of Genesis, and we've worked our way really far. We're like four chapters or four sermons away from the very end of the Old Testament, which if you remember, that's a big chunk. That's like two-thirds of the Bible. We've gotten a ton done But the one thing that sticks out to me consistently as we've preached through the story, and I hope you've seen this, is for whatever reason, Israel does not ever learn things when things are good. But when things are bad, that's when all sorts of bells start going off and things start clicking left and right. What we're going to look at today is one of those stories where things are going real bad. But in the midst of things going real bad, God speaks powerfully. God speaks clearly. God reveals very clearly both who he is and more importantly, I think for us today, what it means to have hope. And so here's what I'm doing. Last night, I chucked my sermon for the week. I threw it to the side. Um, And the reason I did that was because I really felt like I didn't want to just try and convince you of a truth I didn't want, you know, typically in a sermon there's like a structure and an argument and that kind of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. I I love preaching in that context. But I really wanted you to kind of hear my own heart on this. Because as we're going to look at the destruction and fall of Israel, we're going to see the most depressing moment in Israel's life. And then we're going to see the prophets speak into that. The words that the prophets speak, they were clearly directed at Israel in that day. But they have, they continue to echo in our world today. And so what I want to do is I want to share some of my own reflections and how those words that Jeremiah specifically spoke to Israel in the midst of their great despair were words that continued to resonate in my heart, and I hope they're words that will continue to resonate and encourage you as well. So the way I'm going to do it is this, kind of twofold today. I want to tell you the story. That's what we've been doing. We're working through the story. I want you to understand what led up to the fall of Israel the complete and total destruction of Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that. You need to understand, this is the moment in Scripture, this is the single most depressing moment in the Old Testament. As you read this, this is so heart-wrenching that I don't know if we can really tap into the emotion that the Jews felt, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try. And then we're going to look, the bulk of our time is going to look at the prophets. Because in the midst of their world spiraling out of control, in the midst of complete chaos, God continued to speak powerfully and clearly through his prophets. And so we're going to look at one of those prophets today. Specifically, we're going to look at Jeremiah today. And then I'm going to share my own stories and reflection as we go. So there's not really clear application in this sermon as much as it's my own testimony of what God has done in my life. Because as Christians, that's kind of what we're called to do, to share that. So that's my plan. So why don't I start with the story? Why don't I start and just kind of take it back? If you've been with us or you know at this point in the scripture, Israel is a divided nation. Remember? We talked about this about three or four weeks ago. Israel had its own civil war of sorts where they split in half. And you have a northern kingdom and you have a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, because they wanted to make it confusing for us, they called themselves Israel. And the southern kingdom, they called themselves Judah. And as you saw over the last few weeks as we looked at this, neither kingdom was ever perfect, right? Both were giant screw-ups at times, but especially the north. 
This was especially true of the northern kingdom. From the beginning, for whatever reason, the north had totally chucked their faith in God. They had sold themselves to other gods, and they wanted nothing to do with God. The entire time, though, that they're doing this, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to call Israel back to himself, only to find Israel going, yeah, that's nice, but we're going to keep doing things our own way. Israel rejects God, and so God says, fine, I'll let you have the consequences of those actions. You don't want me to protect you. You don't want me as your God. Let's see how that works out for you. And God raises up the Assyrian Empire to come in and conquer the north. And what happens is when the Assyrians come in, it's like a hot knife through butter. Nothing stops them. They do it with incredible ease, and they end up taking a ton of the Israelite people and shipping them off all throughout the Assyrian Empire in an attempt to even weaken further the Israelite base. It's terrible. As the Assyrians continue to march to the southern kingdom, though, we find that the southern kingdom is not in the same position as the north. As I said, there's a lot of times where the southern kingdom is, is failing pretty bad, and we've seen that over the years, or over the, over the last weeks especially. We've seen them fail, but every now and then, the southern kingdom has a glimpse of hope. Every now and then, the southern kingdom is led by a good king. And it just so happens that as the Assyrians begin their march southward, Israel, excuse me, Judah, is led by one of those good kings. And in fact, this is one of the best Kings, a guy named Hezekiah. And if you remember, Pastor Chris preached on Hezekiah last week. And Hezekiah, if you remember, what made him so good was a very simple thing. He just trusted in God. He tried to live according to what God told him to do. So what did he do? He got rid of the idols in the land. He went to the temple regularly to worship. He prayed regularly. He was a pretty normal guy. The difference is he just trusted God the Lord. Nobody else did this at the time. But because he had a habit of going back and trusting in the Lord, when the Assyrian army comes and surrounds Jerusalem and they start calling for his head, give us Hezekiah, Hezekiah doesn't flip out. Instead, Hezekiah falls to his knees and prays, God, I need you to do something. God, I'm trusting you. I have nowhere else to turn. What are you going to do? And as we saw last week, remember, God sends an angel through the Assyrian camp in the middle of the night and he ends up killing 185,000 Assyrian men. So when the Assyrian king wakes up the next morning to begin his assault, he looks out and sees all these dead bodies. Well, he totally freaks out thinking something has happened. And so he retreats home and in doing so, he brings peace to Judah for the next few years, for about another hundred years. Judah is at peace. Now, we didn't really talk as much about this, but if you were to continue reading the story of Hezekiah, you're going to find that this was an incredibly prosperous time for the nation of Judah. Under Hezekiah, Israel embarked on some incredible building projects. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you will still see some of Hezekiah's great accomplishments and building projects. Hezekiah also cleaned the temple. He purified the temple. He re-cleansed it. He brought new objects back in so that they could worship rightfully again. And more than that, he really just restored the land. Things were going so well under Hezekiah that it kind of, as you read, you wonder, what would have happened had they just done what Hezekiah did? What would have happened to Judah had they kept on this path? They probably would have been restored to the heights of Solomon again. 
Unfortunately, when Hezekiah dies, he's replaced by his son Manasseh. And Manasseh, if you're familiar with this story, Manasseh is just the complete opposite of his father. Look, this text doesn't say this. This is just me having worked with teenagers for a long time. I'm saying this. My assumption is Manasseh was a rebellious teenager. And the reason I say that is because most rebellious teenagers completely reject the values and things that their parents are all about, right? I don't want to worship the way you worship. I don't want to do the things you want to do. I want to go my own way. Well, as soon as Manasseh takes over, he completely rejects everything his dad wants. The problem is this. Unlike most rebellious teenagers, you really can't make a big difference, right? You can maybe make things bad for your house and maybe make things bad for your friends, but you can't mess up the whole nation. But Manasseh could, because at 12 years old, Manasseh became king. And he was given an unlimited bank account, and everybody had to listen to him and do what he wanted. And so what Manasseh began to do is he rejected the god of his father, and he turned to the god Baal. We've talked a lot about Baal. Baal was a local regional deity, and Baal kind of asked for some really stupid things. Baal demanded that you sacrifice your children to him regularly, at least your firstborn as a way of doing it. You would dance and try and please Baal so that he would send rain on your crops. And so Manasseh also practiced a form of witchcraft, what we would call modern day witchcraft, where he's consulting mediums and spirits and doing all sorts of divination and stuff like that. It's pretty terrible. The really bad thing is Manasseh, because he takes over at 12 years old, ends up having a very long reign. He reigns for 55 years in Judah. Over half a century. And because he reigns for 55 years and brings complete corruption to the city, the whole society is completely destroyed. And he begins this cycle of chaos that begins a spiral that Israel never pulls itself out of again. Every succeeding king that follows Manasseh follows in his ways, does what he does, worships false gods, does all these other things. There is a bright spot, though, if you read the story. There is a king who actually tries to go the opposite way. There's one good king that follows Manasseh. His name's Josiah. And we're told Josiah is actually a really good king. And in fact, he tries to enact all sorts of reforms. He tries to bring people back to the covenant ways of God. But it's very clear Josiah does too little too late. Even though Josiah was a great king, Israel was too corrupted. And so what we find is within a century, within a century of the time of Hezekiah, a time when Israel was completely destroyed, but Judah persisted because of their faith, within a century, Judah is wiped off the face of the map. What happens is God raises up the king of Babylon, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, to march his armies on the land. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and makes swift work of Jerusalem. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar actually attacks Jerusalem three times. His first attack is in 605 BC. 605 BC. We know he kind of just came in and took it over. He didn't destroy anybody. He didn't really make subjects of them or anything. What he did in that first attack is he basically made it clear, hey, I'm the big dog on the playground and you're going to give me your lunch money. Basically, he demanded, you're going to pay me some sort of tribute, and you just need to know I won't beat you up if you don't, as long as you pay me. That was basically what he did in the first attack. And so for a few years, Israel did. They continued to just pay him to kind of appease him. But then they got cocky. 
Turns out a bunch of false prophets started coming and started saying, oh, God wants you to raise up and fight against Nebuchadnezzar Israel. We're going to take them. And so they rebel and they don't pay the tributes. And so this, this scrappy little group tries to fight the greatest emperor of the day, and Nebuchadnezzar has nothing to do with it. His second attack comes about five years later, and in that second attack, he marshals a chunk of his army. He doesn't marshal the entire part of his army, just a chunk, and he lays siege to the entire city of Jerusalem. And to make a point that he is the one that's in charge and there is no leadership aside from him, he actually guts the heart of Judah. And the way he does it is he comes in and he strips them of about 3,000 of their best and brightest. 3,000 of their best and brightest. Families of the king, artisans, workmen, everything that the city needed to build and become a great power and leadership structure, he guts it. Among those people that are taken into exile at that time, we have a couple famous prophets. The prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Daniel. We're going to talk more about Daniel next week. But we also find out that the king, Jehoiachin, and his entire family, they're stripped and taken away as well. Ten years later, Israel again, after being gutted, thinks they can again rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, enough's enough, I'm sick of these people. They're like a fly that just keeps buzzing, and so he says, I'm going to wipe them off the map. And so Nebuchadnezzar then marshals his entire army and marches on Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this point had built siege works around their buildings to protect themselves. So for two years, Jerusalem fights off the Babylonian empire. But eventually they run out of food, they starve, and Babylon breaks through the walls of Jerusalem. And then to make a, 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 a point of it, they level everything. Babylon breaks through the walls, burns down all the houses, tears down all the buildings, and in fact, we find that the very temple of God itself is stripped bare of everything and raised completely to the ground. The city of God becomes a city of rubble. There is nothing left there. The people are forced into exile. Many of them are killed. They watch as their capital city is stripped away from them. Their God's house, this view that this is where God resides, it's tumbled to the floor. It's as if God himself is dead before the armies of Babylon. They've lost everything. It's incredibly depressing. It is, as I said, the single most depressing event in Israel's history. And if you don't believe me, you can look at the book of Lamentations. You can look at, I think it's chapter 39 in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel and Jeremiah respond to what it is that they see, and it's gut-wrenching. They have lost everything. It's, in, it's so depressing. They don't know what to do about it. And you sit there, and you're like, whoa, this is heavy. They've lost everything. I don't think any of us in this room can comprehend that. Losing everything like that. But through it all, but through it all, you need to understand, God didn't abandon his people. Through it all, God continued to speak words of hope, words of encouragement through his prophets. He continued to remind his people, no, no, I am here. I have not abandoned you. I have not forsaken you. I am still here. I'm still working. And he speaks through his prophets. I told you the big three that you need to know at this time period is the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, and the prophet Daniel. Next Sunday, Pastor Chris is going to talk on Daniel. On Wednesday, if you want to join us at 7 o'clock in Hope Hall, Wednesday, I'm going to hit Ezekiel. And today, I want to hit Jeremiah. 
I want you to see a glimpse of their message. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 29. And so I invite you to open up with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. This is one of those passages, especially Jeremiah 29 verse 11, that for many of you, you've probably heard throughout the years. If you've been around church, this is kind of one of those verses we throw out a lot, right? Many of you, this may even be your life verse. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord's plans to prosper you, not to bring you harm, plans for a future and a hope. This is a common verse that we like to throw around. The funny thing is, we really are really good at taking it out of context. A lot of times we throw out Jeremiah 29, 11 as though it's saying, God's going to give you whatever you want. God knows what you need, and God's going to take care of you immediately. And don't worry, it's coming. Just give it another day or two. That is not the context at all. And in fact, as we're going to see, Jeremiah makes one thing very clear. God does not promise to ever give us the desires of our hearts. And as cheesy as this sounds, but he does, he does promise to give us exactly what we need. What we're going to see in this passage of Jeremiah is Jeremiah is going to make it very clear on what it means to hope. What it means to hope when everything looks hopeless. And then he's also going to tell us very clearly who God is and what it means to trust in him. So Jeremiah 29. Uh, typically, I would set the background and tell you kind of where we're at in this whole thing. But Jeremiah actually does that for us in this section. Look at the first two verses. He tells us what the context of what we're going to read is. He says this. This is the text of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, what he's saying is what we're going to read, verses 4 all the way through 14, actually it goes a little further than that, this is the text of a letter that Jeremiah sent on behalf of God. What you need to understand is Jeremiah was not taken into exile. Instead, Jeremiah was left in Jerusalem. And so he's writing from Jerusalem to Babylon, to the exiles in Babylon. And we actually get even more detail. He tells us when he wrote. Verse 2, this was written after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. This was written, remember I told you Nebuchadnezzar attacked three times? This was written right after the second attack. Okay? This was written after the second attack. This is important because this comes before the complete destruction of Jerusalem. The words that Jeremiah is going to speak about hope, the words that Jeremiah is going to speak to encourage the people as a word of the Lord, you need to keep in mind something they didn't know. They had no idea that God was going to allow their city to be turned into rubble. They had dreams, they had hopes that one day God was going to revive them and take them back to the land and they would flourish again. And God goes, yeah, you're going to see, I got plans for you, but they're not your plans. My plans are completely different than your plans. So it's important that we keep that in mind. This is the text, starting in verse 4. This is what the Lord, the Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I want you to build houses and settle down. I want you to plant gardens and eat what they produce. You are to marry and have sons and daughters. 
I then want you to find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. While you're there, I want you to increase in number. Don't decrease in number. Also, while you're there, because you're going to be there for a long time, I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if that city prospers, then you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord, the Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. In other words, what he's getting at in this section is this. is God saying, hey guys, it's time to buckle up and settle down because you're not going anywhere anytime soon. I know things are bad and they're not going to change anytime soon. So plant your gardens, build your houses, have children, marry your children, grow, increase in number. And in fact, while you're there, why don't you continue to pray for the prosperity of the people that you're surrounded with? Remember, their original goal from the beginning was to be the blessing to other nations. Go and do this. And then he says, I want to make it very clear to you, any talk that this is going to be over anytime soon, that's just wrong. Don't listen to the false prophets. Don't listen to the diviners among you who seem to know the future. They're just telling you what you want to hear. And in fact, if you were to go back to chapter 28, you get a glimpse at what it is that those prophets were saying. And what they were telling them was, hey, just give it a year or two. Then God's going to raise up an army and we're going to take out Babylon. We're going to raise it up. Everything's going to be good. Everything will be better than it was before. And Jeremiah is going, no, they're lying to you. That is not the case. You're not going anywhere. It's bad. It's going to get worse. Buckle up. But... Verse 10, this is what the Lord says. I haven't abandoned my people. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you. And I will fulfill my gracious promise to you to bring you back to this place. And here's why. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They're plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. This is important for us to realize. In the midst of complete despair, in the midst of feeling absolutely hopeless, in the midst of seeing their, being stripped of their homeland and not even knowing that their homeland will be in rubble in a few years, God speaks a profound word of hope. Yes, things will be bad, but I have not abandoned you. Yes, things will get worse. And in 70 years, I will fix them. But 70 years. Do you understand this? He's writing this to adults. They didn't live that long. The majority of the people who are originally receiving this letter are never going to get to see the fruits of what it is that God is talking about. Most of them are going to die. And yet he says, don't. Don't worry, I have a plan. Here's why this is important. This is where it taps into. God is clearly making it very known. I'm not going to give you the desires of your heart. What are the desires of their heart? I mean, this is obvious. I want to go back home. I want to be restored to the way things were. I want to be back to where it was. Those are the desires of their heart. And here's the thing. These are deep desires in their heart. 
These are the things I guarantee you that kept them up at night. These are the things they cried about. These are the things they talked about constantly. There was nothing else on their mind except I want to go home. And God is saying, I hear your heart, but I'm saying no. God never promises to give us the desires of our hearts. This is a hard word. It's never easy to hear. It's never one we really like, but he never promises that. This is one of those lessons I learned in the last few years. After talking with so many people that have been through infertility issues, and many of whom weren't able to have kids of their own, ended up adopting or, or just never being able to have kids, it becomes very clear Getting pregnant? That's, that's not something God ever promises us. Having a healthy child? God never promises that. Living well into your 80s and 90s in good health? God doesn't promise that. God doesn't promise us that we will have good financial health or we will never lose our jobs or bad things will never happen. God never promises that. Those may be the great desires of your hearts, just like getting a kid was the great desire of my heart. But we have to recognize in words like this, God says, no, I, I hear your heart. And yes, one day I will fix things, but right now that's, that may not happen for you. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't still have a plan. I won't give you the desires of your heart, but I'll give you exactly what you need exactly what you need. I see what it is that you want. I have plans for you. Don't think I've forgotten you. Don't think I've abandoned you. In fact, you see this in the other verses when he says, pray for prosperity in the land so that you may prosper as well. God's saying, I'm not abandoning you. You may not get the desires of your heart, but you're still going to be able to thrive and succeed in other areas. In my personal life, where, where this came for us in ours was... This was probably the hardest lesson we had to learn. We felt like God owed us a kid in some ways. We were good people. We worked with teenagers and we saw how many teenagers were able to get pregnant and they didn't know anything about kids. They didn't even want kids. Why couldn't we have kids? We wanted kids. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. What we did was we never gave up our dream. Ever. We never just said, yeah, whatever, I'm going to sign off and I'm going to deal with it. No, we kept praying. We kept pressing in and we kept showing God, this is our heart. We want this. But we began to realize, Lord, if you don't want to give that to us right now, we believe and we trust that you have something better in store for us. I will tell you, that's what hope is. You wake up with something and it's not just about what you're going to get. It's not about the circumstantial change in your life. It's all about the one who promises to give you something. Christian hope isn't about what you get. It's about the one who promises to give. What we learned in this entire thing, and as we're going to continue to see, is hope is all about the character of God. Hope is not about what I desire. Hope is not about circumstantial change. It's all about a relationship. 
Hope is all about trusting that the one who promises to give us stuff, the one who promises to see our need and promises to meet it is good. And the one who does that is willing to follow through and able to follow through on our behalf. That's what hope is. And so it doesn't mean that you give up your dreams. It doesn't mean you stop telling God, this is the desire of my heart. The difference is you turn to him and you say, God, help me to understand. I'm going to trust that you are good, but that's really all I got to go on. So I'm just going to say, you are good, and I'm going to walk forward step by step, day by day. That's all I have. And I know this sounds fluffy, but I'll tell you, that was what I clung to for years. God, I trust that whatever it is that you have to offer, it's good that you have a plan, that you know what you're doing, that you're going to get through this, that you have something for us. And whether we get pregnant or something happens, it doesn't matter. I trust that you have something. It was all I had to cling to. And I'll tell you, I don't know if you're not a Christian. Like, what do you cling to when life goes bad? Where else are you going to go? I mean, I know this may sound weak and kind of ethereal, It was all I had. This is the word the Lord speaks to Judah as well. This is all they had. Their circumstances were way worse than mine. This is all they had. The crazy thing is, if you look at this, this whole thing about coming back to God and experiencing God, being in a relationship with God, God makes it very clear that is the greatest need in our life. Just look at the next couple verses. Just look at them. Verse 12. Then, after 70 years, after suffering in this way, after understanding that my plans for you are good, you will call upon me, and you will come to me and pray to me, and here's the thing. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me, and you will seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And more than that, I will bring you back from captivity. This time of things will end. I have a plan. I will gather you from the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Here's the thing. What it's getting at here, if you were to keep reading the next four chapters into Jeremiah, this is like the primer. This is the beginning section of what he's going to elaborate in the next four chapters. And what he makes very clear in the next four chapters is this. Israel's greatest need, their greatest problem, their greatest issue was not necessarily getting out of captivity, was not returning home. It was that they needed to understand who their God was and they needed to renew that covenant with him. They needed to be in right relationship with him. They needed to know that regardless of what happened in life, regardless of where life threw them, that God was with them. What he makes very clear as you go through this is he talks about removing their hearts of stone and writing on their hearts, their heart of flesh, writing his own law. What God makes very clear is, look, this whole thing about you have this external religion. No, no, I want to get into your life and change your life. That is your greatest need. And if you trust me to get into your life and change your life and radically shape it for the way that you were intended to live, then you will truly be able to experience the things that I know you want that you can't even address right now. So cling to those truths. The thing that I I learned in this entire thing is this. As we were going through this struggle, I told you, I, I knew God wasn't going to give us the desires of our heart always. He could have. 
But what God made it very clear to me, and he makes very clear through this passage, is that regardless of what happens in our life, regardless of where we go, what we do, all those things, God is available to us. God has never given up on us. God has never walked away with us. God has never abandoned us in the midst of that darkness. I know if you've ever been in that place, you're wondering, where the heck is God? You look around, he doesn't seem to be doing anything. What God makes very clear from his word is he is present. Look to him. Trust him. Seek him. You will find him. This was my experience. I mean, he said it better than I did. But I'll tell you, we didn't have anywhere else to go, so we turned to God. And in turning to God, we found incredible encouragement in his word. Passages like this were incredibly encouraging to me. I didn't want some trite like, oh, God's going to take care of you and give you exactly what you want. Like, it just wasn't true. I needed a reminder of who God was and the fact that God was working in my life, that God was available to me. And so I turned back to him and we experienced that. The text doesn't say this as well, but I, I think it's inferred from the passage. I think what we have to realize is in the midst of all of this, God remains good as well. Not only is he available, but God is good. And here's why this is a big deal. As soon as we got pregnant, and we are truly grateful, thankful, we see it as solely by the grace of God, and I mean that. It is understanding of grace is getting expanded more and more every day. When, as soon as we got pregnant, a number of people came up to us, and I, I mean it with complete sincerity. Hear me on this. I don't think they meant what they said. But they often said, oh, God is so good. See, God was good to you. He gave you a kid. And I know what they meant. They meant well. Like, see, yeah, just God is good. But what I took that as was them saying, now God is good. As if somehow prior to me getting a kid, God was not good in that space. And that's just not true. As if God is only good when Israel is returned back to the promised land. That's just not true. God's character, God's goodness does not waver based on our circumstances. It doesn't waver based on what we get and what we don't get. God is good. That is his character. And he is always available to us. And he promises that in his goodness, he knows exactly what we need. And he promises to deliver it. So let me be even more clear. What does Christian hope all about? What does it mean to hope in Christ? How do we do that? You have to realize Christian hope is not so much about circumstantial change as it is in trusting in the one who promises to bring change and trusting that he is good. When you trust that he is good and you continue to move forward with that, what else you got? That's everything. I told you I don't really have practical application for you, and I don't. But I'll tell you, and if you want to talk more about it, I'd be more than honored to share with you. Like, this was our story. And I felt it was important for me to stand up today and witness to what God has done in my life. Witness to who Christ is to me. And tell you, these things that I'm preaching to you, like, they, they genuinely were things that the Lord has shaped in my heart over the years. And I hope, I hope you're able to hear from the prophet Jeremiah. You're able to hear from my story. You're able to share your own stories with each other and take this encouragement and hope as well. Because church, we serve a good God. 
A God who says, look, I'm not always going to give you the desires of your heart, but I know exactly what you need. And I promise to show up. Let me pray. Father, you are good. There's nothing else we can necessarily declare. You are good and your love endures forever. Lord, it is so overwhelming to think that words you spoke I don't know, 2,600 years ago, continue to resonate powerfully with us today as your church. We're grateful for your truth, and I just pray that in my life, Lord, as I continue to live as a testimony to what it is that you have done, Lord, that that would just continue to ripple out good things. But more than that, Lord, that each and every person in this room, we would be able to reflect back on the ways we've experienced the truths that Jeremiah talks about as well and continue to share those with people we come into contact with. Lord, for those in this room who are struggling today, I pray, God, that you would give them hope, that you would remind them of your character, and that you would give them something to cling to. Lord, for those who are in a good space, too, I pray, God, that you would allow us to speak with words of wisdom, your grace to one another, remind each other of who you are and what you're doing for us. Lord, as we turn to continue in worship, as we turn to hand over these offerings, as we turn to receive your sacrament and sing more songs of praise, we just pray that this would be holy space. Space, Lord, that puts a gigantic smile on your face as we recognize, God, you have been so good to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.